Episode of the Uncover Up. I am Lee Kunla, and with me are my co-hosts, Doctor Elena Papianis. Hey there. And Professor Nathan Radke. Hello, and we are actually all here. We are actually we are all physically here, here, physically present, not over some kind of call on the computer. We're outside. You can probably hear some of the wonderful sounds of summer around us. Yep. That Thanks, was a construction Nathan. truck, I think, unfortunately. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, of course, we are sitting at a responsible distance apart. Yes, we, we are. are. I can barely see you guys. You're so far away. Yeah. And it's weird to be podcasting wearing sunglasses. That's I love true. it. I think this is the way we got to go. I if feel this... so relaxed right now. I know. This is, no offense, Nathan, but I feel more relaxed than I do when we're in the bunker. <laughs> the bunker is not an environment that's designed to inspire relaxation. No, no. it's naturally a little tense. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, 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 it makes me paranoid, which is good for the podcast. That's what it's for. <laughs> well, enjoy the relaxation that you feel right now. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like today's episode is going to be, I mean, parts of it are going to be kind of darkly humorous. And then a lot of it is going to be heartbreaking. Hmm. Yes, totally. So it is June still, and we're just uh, narrowly squeaking in our Pride-related episode. Uh, We're going to cover the Lavender Scare today. So as Nathan said, there are some kind of bizarrely, well, just bizarre Bizarre. spots in there. But it's there's also some like deeply sad stuff in there, too. So. Because, again, like we so often see when we do podcasts on, on historical conspiracy theory, there's this kind of tension between the inherent dignity that individuals should all have and the agency to make free choices. And then what happens when you get caught up in these horrifying giant structures that tend to throw people in and grind them up? Mm-hmm. So I knew about the Lavender Scare but I know very little about it. And actually, uh, (laughs) my attempt to research uh, the Lavender Scare came up with surprisingly little relative to the other topics that we've covered. I remember texting both of you outraged at how much more I was able to find about Bigfoot Mm -hmm. versus the Lavender Scare. So I'm still quite in the dark about exactly what happened, what the details were. And I think that's going to be my role today is I'm going to ask you both some questions about the Lavender Scare and you can fill me in. So what was it? Let's start by getting historically situated. Let's get ourselves situated appropriately. Which, in fact, Lee will be able to help us do as well. Oh, yeah. So wait, I have to answer my own question? (laughs) Yeah. So let me answer your question by having you answer (laughs) the question. Okay. All right. We're going to have to go to a paranoid time. Mm-hmm. to a dangerous time, to uh, a time when we were seeing bad ideas basically fly at us from all directions. A time that we talk about a lot in this podcast. Uh, like time, almost yeah. a, every time, almost. Yeah, if we're not in the 70s, we're here. Yeah. In the 50s! In the, the 50s. 50s. <laughs> so let's start in the 1950s. Okay. And I think maybe the best way to situate the Lavender Scare is if we talk a little bit about its cousin, the Red Scare. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, if you are listening to this podcast for the first time, 
Um, you may not know that we bring up the Red Scare almost every time we talk about this with aliens. Did we bring it up with Bigfoot and Loch Ness? I mean, it's got to be in, it's got to be the context for 80% of what we've covered. Yeah. It's got to be. Yeah. Basically everything other than Kurt Cobain's death. Yeah. And, and the Loch Ness Monster. And the Loch Ness Monster. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Nathan well, is not quite uh, sure. Yeah. Okay. So, um, wait, you were asking me about the Red Scare. All right, so it's, 19, it's the early 1950s. You have on the one side of the world, you had the Soviet Union, the okay. communist Soviet Union. Yes. On the other side, you had the capitalist United States and Western Europe and Canada. That's right. And they were in a kind of a, not a hot war. Right. Yeah. They were in a cold war. They were in a cold war. <laughs> and incidentally, I had to look this up once in my life. A cold war is a war in which you fight mostly through unconventional means mm -hmm. or through proxy wars where you use other armies and other countries to kind of do your battles for you. See Vietnam, see Afghanistan, stuff like that. And it was a lot of propaganda. One analysis I read suggested that really the Olympics was oh, the yeah. stage of the Cold War. Right. Communist bloc versus capitalist bloc. So the Olympics or the space race, I would say, were some of the exactly. really big ones, yeah. the big symbolic ones. And so what the Cold War was about were these two economic political systems embodied primarily in the Soviet Union on the one hand and American and West European capitalism on the other, fighting for hearts and minds of the world and apparently some kind of political ideological world domination if it wasn't actually like you know an imperialist domination capitalists wanted the whole world to be capitalist communists wanted the whole world to be communist both sides had nuclear bombs which made an actual hot war a straight-up confrontation with each other not the most reasonable course of action because probably as they had this lovely acronym in the 1960s everybody would die mutually assured destruction was the official policy of the united states and i think should maybe be the name of this podcast because i think we yeah. talk about it in every episode okay yeah um another thing that i wanted to add is just that logic that went um that was embodied by the u.s perspective this domino theory fear too right so oh, that's there's a this good fear point. that yeah, you know if one country falls to the Soviets, then the next country next door is going to, and then the rest, and then we're totally lost, and we're totally gone, and pretty soon the whole world's communist. That's right, comrade. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember as a kid, actually, watching those, what did you guys call them again? PSAs. PSAs right. about the domino theory. Right. And I remember one in particular which suggested it was like a cavity in a tooth. Mm. And if left untreated, it would make the next tooth fall out. And, and soon and before too long, you would have no teeth. And so, you know, you had to pull communism out by its root right when it started. But and, and the thing about cavities is it's happening right there in your own mouth. Mm -hmm. yes. And the thing about the Red Scare was, yes. right. it was happening right there in your own backyard. Well, exactly. Well, not in your backyard where no, we are. No, we're in the There's none here. That's right, comrade. We're, we're fine. <laughs> What this, though, sets up is a really paranoid dynamic, because just as you say, Nathan, there are the communists over there in the Soviet Union, but then there could probably also be political sympathizers here at home. And who do, how do we know what they look like? And how can we tell if the people we're speaking to aren't spies, mm -hmm. saboteurs? And so a really paranoid political culture develops in the United States. Um, maybe it ramps up an already existing paranoid political culture. But either way, <laughs> the 50s are a really paranoid time where 
official organs of the American government are hunting and looking for quote-unquote subversives. And those could be communists, people who are a member of the Communist Party. But very quickly, it, it broadens to all kinds of, and I really put a lot of quotes around these ideas, uh, un-American type people. You know, people who don't fit that leave it to beaver, mm -hmm. stereotypical image of two and a half kids, white picket fence, live in the suburbs, dad goes to work, everything's fine, right? And so anarchists, feminists, we've talked about this so civil often. Civil rights advocates. Civil rights advocates. It, it, it got pretty broad about who could be considered an anti-American or not sufficiently American. And all those people were you know, potentially dangerous because they might somehow provide information, defect, be saboteurs, spies, whatever. Yeah, it's almost like this very specific external threat was then generalized on like an internal level to be like, well, that's what we're afraid of over there, but it could look like anything over here. Yeah. We don't really know where they are and who they are. We just, so, so it added to this kind of fear of everything diff, quote unquote different. There was such a broad definition of what the threat was. It wasn't like people were well-educated on the, the nature of communism within the Soviet Union. That communism just became sort of a catch-all mm -hmm. for the other, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. meant that the, all these other things could so easily fall into that really broad ca category. And at the same time that the enemy's category is getting super broad and could include anything, that meant that what it meant to be a true American was getting narrower and narrower and narrower all of the time. Point being... We go from communists to homosexuals because they fit this this pattern of a deviant group. Mm -hmm. Now, at this point, maybe un-American. At this point, maybe let's talk a bit about language because uh, okay. I think we probably will use the phrase homosexuals because we're talking about the 1950s. Yeah, and that's they use it a ton. Like every paper you read or every like investigation where they mention something that's it's used as the term for sure. Right. Homosexuals. But we're not we're not owning that term here. No. No. But also because that seemed to be a very vague term to speak to the LGBTQ plus community that exists today. I mean, mm -hmm. I think transgender people would be considered, quote unquote, homosexuals. That would be, I yeah. guess, the closest technical term that you would get, right? It just meant not straight. Yeah. Not not straight, exactly. Yeah, some like gender gender or well, some nonconforming either in terms yeah. of gender or sexual orientation. Not mm -hmm. heteronormative. Yeah. And I mean, at this point, I, I feel like it doesn't even need to be said, but we'll say it anyway. Like, human experience is extraordinarily broad and diverse. It's just the nature of what it means to be human. Mm -hmm. We're like, there's, there's a lot of diversity within that. And so there's always, there's always terror when you have this kind of purity rhetoric where you try to narrow the broad human experience into this really, like, uncomfortable box that you then try to cram everybody into. And I mean, it might be bizarre for like our younger listeners listening because mm. I mean, it's, it's much more seen as, I mean, gender is seen on the spectrum, sexual orientation, um, gender identity, everything is seen on this kind of spectrum, this understanding that there's this wide range where you can identify, um, where you can identify yourself and, or express yourself. And so it might be kind of bizarre to think back to this very narrow definition that um, that was expected of people. Should we also mention, though, um, which you mentioned before, Lee, before we started recording, this idea that in World War II and previous to this, to the Cold War period we're talking about now, that there were like flourishing gay communities 
in, in many parts of the world, including like Washington, D.C., which we'll be focusing on for part of our talk today, right? So, so this movement can very much be seen, or this scare can very much be seen as kind of a backlash against something that was more accepted before this time. I, I think you're absolutely right, Elena. And this is something that I've been uh, encountering in a lot of my readings in, in different areas. This notion that progress is sort of a straight or an upward, constantly on an upward trajectory, that the next decade in whatever way is going to be slightly more progressive than the previous one. And that just isn't true. Totally. That just isn't true. You can look back on all kinds of issues. Um, the enfranchisement of women politically. Uh, I remember looking, and I'm sorry, I'm pulling out these old examples out of my hat, but I remember uh, reading that women in post-revolutionary France, so this is the uh, you know early 1800s, late 1790s, had more rights than French women up until the 1970s. You know, wow, so yeah. so a woman in whatever 1796. I'm not. I'm not again. Not not saying this is a great time to be alive, or that it's in any way comparable to what we would expect today. But that woman actually had more political rights than her counterpart in France in 1900 or 1920. So this notion that the next decade is always more progressive than the previous one is just not borne out by history. Mm -hmm. And so the same thing is also the case with gay culture. You know, the, this, the naive notion I walked into this with, which I, sh I should have known better because I've actually lived in Berlin and I know about German culture and uh, German history, especially with Berlin, where there was a thriving uh, gay scene in the 20s there. And so it's not the case that this is just an expression of already existing prejudices mm -hmm. that just now sort of get ramped up in the Cold War. To some extent, I think that these are produced and developed. Um, they're, they're rather modern prejudices mm -hmm. in a way where, like you were saying, Elena, I mean, my understanding was it wasn't like there was full acceptance or anything, but there was a kind of more openness uh, or even a, yeah. just a begrudging toleration. Like, oh, right. this is fine, I won't, you know, I don't like what you're doing kind of thing. Oh, again, oh, this is not me, but yeah. the, the trying to imagine the, the discourse, but I'll let you do what you want, you know, as long as it's, I'm not subjected to it or mm -hmm. whatever. Uh, that seemed to be more the prevailing attitude. So to me, the whole thing seemed frankly weird that you would go from a relatively more tolerant culture when it came to gay identities mm -hmm. to something that became so paranoid and restrictive in the 1950s. Well, was the Kinsey report part of this, part of the sort of sparking some of the fear? So the 1948 Kinsey report on sexual behavior in the human male, um, he reported a lot more, I guess, a higher degree of same-sex experiences um, than people had expected, which sort of added to a general um. unease that was forming around sex. And there were a few things at the, around the same time. So 48 was Kinsey, 47, the U.S. Park Police or something put out um, a new program called the Sex Perversion Elimination Program, which was targeting gay men and, I guess, activity in the parks that they could try and clamp down on. And a year after that, uh, Congress passed an act quote, for the treatment of sexual psychopaths. So there was very much this Ouch. association uh, with homosexuality and being deviant or mentally ill. There was a real uh, connection starting. And like you said, it would have been out there in the public realm via, you know, very spectacular reports mm -hmm. in the news. 
And I think not to be very cynical, because, I mean, that's out of character for me. Right. <laughs> no, I mean, I, but it was a time when there were sort of political forces who required enemies. Yes. And, and that's why the Red Scare, I think, is the place that we start. And maybe we start with a guy called Senator Joseph McCarthy, who basically makes his bones by terrifying the American population into thinking that there was this imminent threat hidden amongst them. We've talked about this guy before when we talked about Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Mm -hmm. And if you want to get a feel for that time period, go watch the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers. This idea that there was a threat, it was imminent, it could be your next door neighbor. Yeah, it was just lurking somewhere. It's right. just lurking yeah. and it's going to spread. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it could maybe even, you could even maybe catch it. Like communism was like this, this disease that was could be passed along by, oh, I just picked up a pamphlet off the ground. Oh, no, now I've caught communism. I'm infected. Right. I'm yeah. infected with it. Right. And McCarthy is going around making a lot of noise, making a lot of bluster in front of TV cameras because he realized fairly early on, hey, this new television thing, like, it is super important to capture the attention of people through this new medium because it's so powerful at sort of shaping minds. And he was going around talking about how there's 200 communists or there's 300 communists working for the American government or 150. The, the number always changed because he was always making up the number. Mm -hmm. And as they start to persecute communists in something called the Red Scare, what they do is they, they basically, they grab somebody who they suspect of being a communist. They browbeat them until they start naming names. And then you go pick up those people and then you browbeat them and you threaten them unless they name names. And so it started to spread and spread, and they started bringing more people into these kangaroo courts. Uh, and these were people who were losing their livelihoods, their jobs, their families, because of these wild accusations. And at some point, he starts to spread, not just from persecuting people he thought were communists, but people that he thought were homosexual. Right. So the link was explicitly made in political rhetoric around... Uh, connecting communism and queerness. And so not shortly, you know, shortly after Kinsey's report, 1950, McCarthy comes out with his list. Like you said, it keeps changing the number. And apparently, two on one of his lists, I think it, this was a list of less than, I think it was only 20 or something, but they were two, quote unquote, unsafe risks that were concerning specifically what they thought might be gay men. Case 14 and case 62, they were people who were fired. And then the fear was that they might get rehired and re-infiltrate. Oh, mm -hmm. So then, so there was this, this concern over sort of the mechanisms to like, can we first of all identify them? And then how can we make sure they don't get back in? They're not like lost in the loophole somewhere. Is, is, does that account for why people's sexuality was made public? When somebody was fired from the State Department or wherever for... For being an Suspect, undesirable. Yeah, yes. for suspected homosexual activity. That would become known, as I understand it. It would become public knowledge to their family, to their friends. I feel like there was another word they used for it, though. I don't think it was openly said. I think it was, like, around loyalty or um, right. just being a security risk, right. more okay. generally. I don't think they were blatantly outed. And, in fact, the fear oh, of being blatantly okay. outed might make people resign rather than risk that fear. Interesting. I don't know. I can't say for sure, though, if there were cases of people. I think the implication was there, I, I, whether or not it was explicit. Okay. It was implied that maybe that was why you were fired or resigned. I, I don't want to veer off because um, I'm fascinated by what you're saying, Elena, but it does remind me of uh, this concept that I think we brought up a couple of times in the podcast before about subtext, about how 
the written word or the spoken word sometimes actually means something quite different. Totally. And I was really struck by this being a really obvious case of this when the people were being targeted because of their sexuality, but the language that was being used is just exactly as you say, Elena, was things like loyalty risk, perversion right, was one of sure. those. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I don't think, and I, I haven't done a literature review of this, but my understanding is that sex or perversion as a concept in 1950s newspaper reporting refers basically exclusively to homosexual activity. I, I think so. And yeah? specifically, I think it would be applied more to men right. um, as well. Okay. Uh, at least that's how it was sort of in the, in the public realm. Like it seemed to be more persecuted. It seemed to be more like it was targeting males, uh, gay men, uh, when they use that term perversion or like, for example, the sex perversion elimination program, right, which right, would right. go around to parks. Okay. Yeah. So this is what starts to happen in Washington, D.C. Now, up until then, Washington, D.C. Uh, had actually had a fairly active, thriving gay community up until the 1950s. Uh, it had become known as a town that you could go to as an openly gay person mm-hmm. and that you could live your life and you, get could, a good have, job. you could get a good job yeah. and you wouldn't have to, to conceal yourself. And so all of a sudden in that same city that had used to be kind of a, a safe place for people to be honest about who they were, now it's terrifying mm-hmm. because at any second somebody might show up at your house and throw you in a car and then you get grilled and then you've got to name all of your friends and you know if you name one of your friends this is going to happen to them mm-hmm. totally and that's such a horrifying equation in order to get yourself out of this awful experience you're going to have to put someone you love into this awful experience and so a lot of people chose to just say you know what i will not name anybody mm-hmm. I will, like, you can leave me in here for days if you have to, but I'm not going to name names. But what a what an awful position to put people in. It's an awful position, and as you're talking, it reminds me also... We're outdoors. Yeah. Yeah, I know, right? They're coming. And well, it's, like, around the corner of the fire, yeah. the fire hall, so... Well, I mean, I think it adds a certain level of... Authenticity. Authenticity yeah. that we have these sirens going yeah. off. So... It makes me think as well as you're uh, talking about that, Nathan, that just how bad or how unreliable this information is, because I also know mm-hmm. that it would work the other way where you just name people you couldn't totally. stand, yeah. right? Sure. I, I mean, can think of some people yeah. I would yeah, you name. Sure, I'll, <laughs> I'll give you name. five right. names of people who are bugging me. Yeah. And I mean, we knew this from uh, the Stasi. We know it from the KGB. We know that. This just is how this works. Once you set up these institutions where you can just rat out people, you also rat out people. I mean, you never, it never works to catch anybody that you're looking for. No. But it does work to get ensnare all these people in a whole world of hurt that doesn't really produce anything meaningful at the end. You just can't do law enforcement this way if you're actually trying to... I mean, I'm not trying to give law enforcement any tips on how to break up gay culture or anything you know like that's a that that would be it's not bad. gonna happen anyways you right. can't do it good yeah. um but it just seems like the wrong that, that way to how. go about it yeah and i guess we haven't even specifically mentioned why they might be targeting like we've we've oh that's right we, you know okay. so so why well there were fears i mean we there's these fears around their character or character so we mentioned you know this idea of being godless or disturbed or morally weak 
there were general, more general sort of threats that gay people would pose to the traditional family or gender norms. But specifically to do with communism, there was, I guess on the one hand, the fear that they might be more susceptible to being communists themselves because they might be in the same kind of mentally twisted sort that communists might be. But on the other hand, which was maybe more generalized and used more often, was just this fear that they could be blackmailed because mm-hmm. they had this this you know unique thing about them or they're part of the subculture that would make them more susceptible to being blackmailed, in which case they might give up some, some juicy government secrets. That's something that we need to stick with for a little bit because mm-hmm. the logic there is bizarre. Totally bizarre. <laughs> which of us should... You take like it. We're all, you go. We're, we're, we'll we'll jump in when we can. Yeah. I got something. <laughs> okay. I got something waiting. Okay. Here's the problem with the logic of that. The argument that because you were gay, that made you more susceptible to being blackmailed, wasn't because you were gay. Yeah. The reason that you would become more susceptible to being blackmailed was because you were living in a homophobic society. Totally. If your society wasn't homophobic, somebody knowing you're gay doesn't give them any blackmail. Yeah. Like. It would have been more effective to just destigmatize homosexuality. If they were genuinely worried yeah. about the KGB blackmailing people, which they should have been, because that yeah. is one of the classic KGB moves, rather than trying to ferret out everybody who uh, had any kind of homosexual tendencies, they should have just said, well, maybe we stop being so homophobic. Totally. And then the KGB would totally lose the ability yeah. to threaten people with outing them. Hmm. Agreed. But I, I want to go back to the first thing that Elena said, which I think is interesting. And I, I just had a thought. Uh, the first part is that there was just, there was something about homosexual people that, that made the American government concerned that they would be more vulnerable to communism. This reminded me of a conspiracy in the 1940s during World War II, where a lot of people in the southern states were concerned that African Americans in those southern states were going to be working with the Germans. Right. And of course, there was absolutely no evidence of that. It wasn't something that existed at all. But what I think it did speak to was the knowledge that maybe people had in those states that, oh boy, this is a population that we have not been treating well at all. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Totally. It's like they're... You're afraid of the people you've been assholes to, basically, because... Yeah, it's like a a collective guilty conscience. Yeah. Yeah. It's like this return of the repressed, uh (laughs) uh-oh. So it's like, of course they're going to side with the Soviets. We've been terrible to them. Yeah, (laughs) So I wonder if that is part of it, that sort of knowledge. It's like, Hmm. oh boy. Like the, the, the unfair way we've been treating these human beings is going to come back at us somehow. Although, I have here a, uh, an article written by a Countess Waldeck, who was a, uh, in her bio here, in Weimar Republic days, she was known as Frau Olstein of the famous magazine publishing family, and she was renowned as a great wit and beauty. That's, <laughs> that's uh, her bio. That's a, my bio is not that good. <laughs> I gotta add that to mine. I, I think know, we right? All I add like that. that. <laughs> wit and beauty. Wit and beauty. Lee, Elena, Nathan, who are all renowned as great wits and beauties. Yes. And so she writes this article called "The Homosexual International." Now, Lee, do you want to quickly explain what was the Communist International? The Communist International is a sort of Soviet-run pseudo-international movement in order to generate communism on a global level. The idea, if you go right down into um, Marxist literature, is that communism can't actually exist only in one state. One state communism is an innovation 
and I put that in quotation marks, by Stalin, who, you know, realized nobody was really going to join in. So they, it was a sort of a make-do process. But the, the, the idea embodied very much in somebody like Che Guevara, you know, who get, comes into power, is like, all right, job done. We got Cuba communist. Now off we go and start another revolution somewhere else. The idea was that communism had to be a world movement. And so, yeah, the Comintern was set up and uh, you could, I was actually just uh, reading a book by a former world chess champion from India, a man named Vishyanand. And he talked about how the tall international chess club in his area of southern India, heavily funded by the Soviet Union. And, you know, Beside the chess books were a couple of things about how Soviet communism was great and maybe you'd like to start it up yourself. And they got all their chess books for free. And so these were, you know, this was a real thing. And they had different mechanisms by which to try and info, that's maybe the wrong word, to try and popularize the idea of communism around the world. And this was exactly what people like McCarthy, Nixon, uh, J. Edgar Hoover were worried about when it came to feminists, black nationalists, civil uh, rights, civil advocates. rights uh, advocates, that they were secretly being funded by the Communist International to sort of subvert American and Western culture. Well, Countess Waldeck in Homosexual International, I'm going to I'm going to just read directly. I can't paraphrase her words. Wh- just, when did this she come just, out? She has too much wit and beauty for me to paraphrase. This was written in September 29th, 1960. Okay. These are her words. The following words are Countess Waldeck's, not mine. In reality, the main reason why, at this juncture of history, the elimination of the homosexuals from all government agencies and especially from the State Department is of vital urgency is that by the very nature of their vice, they belong to a sinister, mysterious, and efficient international, welded together by the identity of their forbidden desires, of their strange, sad needs, habits, dangers, not to mention their outrageously fatuous vocabulary, Members of this international (laughs) constitute a worldwide conspiracy against society. This conspiracy has spread all over the globe, has penetrated all classes, operates in armies and in prisons, has infiltrated into the press, the movies and the cabinets, and it all but dominates the arts, literature, theater, music, and TV. And here's why homosexual officials are a peril to us in the present struggle between West and East. Members of one conspiracy are prone to join another conspiracy. This is one reason why so many homosexuals, from being enemies of society in general, become enemies of capitalism in particular. Hmm. Without being necessarily Marxist, they serve the ends of the Communist International in the name of their rebellion against the prejudices, standards, ideals of the bourgeois world. Wow. I mean, if she's saying that we're fierce, she's not wrong. (laughs) Oh, sure. <laughs> She's not wrong. Fatuous, outrageously fatuous vocabulary. I know. That vocabulary, I know. That really that's struck a compliment. Me. Now, you might you think... You speak too well. You yeah. must be gay. That is outrageously fatuous. Um, but no, I should say, uh, maybe I just dug this up from somewhere, some weird German countess, but I want to point out that this was brought into Congress, American Congress, and it was read aloud and entered into... One the of the investigations? Or, yeah, yeah, like this was actually something that Congress people brought in and was part of this drive to try to force out 
And so what would have brought us to that? So I'll circle back a little bit. So we, we brought up McCarthy, this idea of lists and the, these fears over gay people being in the State Department or being in the government, being fired, potentially rehired. And so he, or there was a number revealed that there were 91 people fired from the State Department because they were seen as quote unquote security risks. That freaked people out. That forced more investigations. And there was one done by Senator Kenneth Wary between March and May 1950. And the they had testimony from Lieutenant Roy Blick, who was the head of the DC Police Department vice squad. And he gave very speculative numbers based on almost nothing. He claimed that there were 5,000 gay people living in DC and that uh, 3,700 of them were federal employees. And so that was plastered all over the news reports. People were so shocked and surprised at these huge numbers. And uh, that's then what or then Senate then resolved to investigate employment more deeply as of June 1950. So that really set them into this this real kind of wormhole of of um, investigating and trying to pinpoint and identify gay people. And it gets scarier. Yeah, this is yeah. Because I want We're to return to Countess Waldeck for a second, mm-hmm. if I may. That the homosexual international could become dangerous should have been evident to anyone who has had an opportunity to observe the mysterious manner in which homosexuals recognize each other. By a glance, a gesture, an indefinable pitch of voice, and the astonishing understanding which this recognition creates between men who seem to be socially or politically at opposite poles. True, other internationals are better organized and more articulate, but what is the unifying force of race, of faith, of ideology as compared to the unifying force of a vice which intimately links the press tycoon to the beggar, the jailbird to the ambassador, the general to the Pullman porter. Hmm. They're just out there recognizing each other and like having secret signs and stuff. Yeah. It's pretty scary. <laughs> um, I know when you sent that, you sent that to us a, a few days ago, didn't you? And I was like, is she talking about gaydar? Yeah. Like, is that they have this power gaydar. to identify ourselves? Yeah. yeah. Pretty amazing. Yeah. I don't know if either of you know the answer to this, and it is a terribly naive question in a way. Was... What I'm asking about is how was homosexuality seen in the discourse back then as the lavender scares really ramping up? And and what I mean by that is, is it a choice, like a sort of a moral choice that somebody has chosen to make and, and then you can seduce other people, you know, somebody, some, somebody looks up to, you know, could then seduce that person the person who does the looking up, you know, could be seduced by, by their hero into becoming this, you know, again, quote unquote, immoral, et cetera, et cetera, person. Or was it as apologized? Yeah. Like the APA says, Oh, this is a mental health condition. It's a kind of an illness or was it yet something else? I think closer to the way it's seen uh, a lot in the medical community today, which is just one of a number of different identities that people are to some extent born with. I think it's the middle one, the pathologizing um, from what I've seen, because I mean, this idea of perversion being described as a perversion and it was in the DSM up until the 1970s. I don't know exactly what year. Yeah. uh, 1973. It was it was in there until then. So, and actually, one of the men who helped to get it out of there is Frank Kameny, and he was right. and have you heard of him? Yeah. I so he have. was an astronomer in the U.S. Army's Map Service in D.C., and he was fired from his job there in 1957. 
he and the reason he was is because he had he had had a prior arrest in San Francisco when someone had like propositioned him in a park or something. But uh, he had to serve, I think, just three years probation. And then he was told that would be expunged from his record. But mm -hmm. I guess it somehow wasn't. Mm -hmm. And so he was fired. He formally appealed it a few times, lost those appeals. And he was then the first person to bring it up to the Supreme Court, where he also lost. But he became a major advocate on, on different levels. Like he, for example, so he was part of a founders of the of a society in DC that held some of the first protests there. Like they had a picket line outside of the White House okay. in 1965, I think beginning then, maybe earlier. He had a campaign to overturn some DC sodomy laws or and, the, and that wasn't passed until like 30 years after that, 1993. He helped to, he was one of the people who helped to convince the APA, American Psychological Association, to, they literally had to debate it, I think, the issue of it. Hmm. Um, and in fact, specifically, I think they made it almost, he made it on, them almost turn it on themselves. So it was like a bunch of psychiatrists considering the impact on gay psychiatrists huh. of having to claim that what they are is mentally ill right. and to treat people as well that way. And they ultimately changed that in 1973. They changed that classification so that it was not seen as a mental disorder anymore. And he also helped service members who were discharged from the military to try and get honorable discharges instead of dishonorable discharges, which is what they would have gotten. So he's known as one of like, uh, as a huge uh, gay rights activist from that, uh, spanning from that time. I, I think something else that might help answer Lee's question is if we go to the horse's mouth, so to speak, and we check out maybe a couple clips from a oh, 1950s yeah. PSA Please. about yeah, the yeah. subject. Okay. Yeah. When Bobby recognized the stranger as the man in the restroom, the shortcut under the pier didn't seem like a good idea at all. After all, it's more fun to stay with your friends anyway. Bobby had made a wise decision. It may have saved his life. The decision is always yours, and your whole future may depend on making the right one. So no matter where you meet a stranger, be careful if they are too friendly, if they try to win your confidence too quickly, and if they become overly personal. One never knows when the homosexual is about. He may appear normal, and it may be too late when you discover he is mentally ill. So keep with your group, and don't go off alone with strangers unless you have the permission of your parent or teacher. So I think that gets you a, sort of a feel for the time. That, that's really helpful because having something right from, as you say, uh, you know, the horse's mouth, an institution that puts the words mentally ill mm -hmm. uh, in that context. Um, but they also seem to be treating it like it was something that was contagious. Well, so this is, this is my question then about the kind of, uh, it's, it's really hard to talk about this in the, the quote unquote solution. Right, seems to be different depending on how you parse the problem. If we're dealing with an illness, what's with all the moral language? What's with all the like, 
you know, deviant and... You have uh, to make the right choice. You have to make the right choice stuff. That sounds very much like the kind of thing you would get in a don't do drugs ad. Yeah, right? Like, like, and there, not that I'm justifying any of this, but again, I'm trying to understand even the internal logic here. The solution doesn't seem to fit the way they're characterizing the problem. Well, particular, I mean, I know that there was like, you know, forced uh, electroshock therapy and things like that to people who were, quote unquote, you know, repeat offenders. And I, I think um, that that British... Uh, Alan Turing. Thank you. Yeah. The famous... Um, yeah. He was also given forced hormone therapy. Hormone therapy. So and I then know eventually, not surprisingly, took his own life. Took his own life. Now... I, so I realize that there is this medical approach to it, but so much of this moral outrage seems misplaced if the discourse is predominantly around but illness. But maybe they're not exclusive. So okay. the way, I don't know, the way I could maybe see that now that you've brought up this point is it's like, okay, here's the the gay person. They don't have a choice. They're ill. Okay. They're ill, but you have the choice not to befriend them, not to get sucked in by their illness or not to like, you have to be the sort of moral person with care, with more character and more strength uh-huh. or more whatever. Okay. It's too to late then for resist. them. Right. It's too yeah. late for them, but you, you yeah. could still be saved. Huh. I don't know. Does that. Yeah, fit? sure. I mean, <laughs> I think what we're trying to do here yeah. is make sense of something of that doesn't really make yeah, sense. Totally. But in this sense, I'm trying to just get the internal logic and Elena. Yeah. I think that, I wonder if there's a sort of a connection to the way we think about violence, you know, that, that it is, it has this pathological dimension and yet you are still sort of open to making a choice about whether to pursue that or not, but too much exposure to violent video games and violent friends and you kind of become desensitized and, you know, wow. Okay. And that sort of explains too uh, the countess and her idea that, no, there's this giant conspiracy. They are taking over the entire world. Hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think it was, the, there aren't exact numbers, but I think it was between about 7,000 and 10,000 people in the States who would have been fired or resigned, forced wow. to resign from their jobs. And the Canadian numbers are less. I don't know exactly what they are, obviously, but... Or I don't, we we, obviously we are smaller. We have... Yeah, we are smaller. But, <laughs> have, but Nathan, you did a bit more research on the Canadian context, didn't you? Yeah, I yeah. mean, we're up here in Canada and we are a, a, a less populated nation, but we also have like... We've we made took part her, in this. Yeah, yes. our own sad contributions, right? Yeah. So in the 1950s, it was driven by the RCMP. This was at a time when the RCMP sort of had the responsibility of intelligence. They were sort of like the CIA and the FBI all rolled up into mm-hmm. one before we had our own sort of specific intelligence services. And so in the 1950s, it's driven by the RCMP out of a fear, exactly the same as the states, as communist vulnerability, blackmail, that kind of thing. Now, interestingly, our prime minister at the time, a guy called Prime Minister Diefenbaker. um, He's come up before. He's come up before, and I bet you he'll come up again. But here's the thing about Diefenbaker. He was a proponent of civil rights in the 1950s. Uh, He was a civil rights lawyer. He had done some work for indigenous rights. And Diefenbaker was actually cautioning the RCMP. He was saying, guys, I think this is blown out of control. I don't think this is the threat you think it is. I think you've gone way too far. But the RCMP was kind of out of control. Hmm. So Diefenbaker, in my research, Diefenbaker actually came off okay. Hmm. Wow. So shout out to Dief the Chief. Yeah. The RCMP was frantic to try to hunt down all of the gay people they could find. But it was frustrating because, as they pointed out, they look like everyone yeah. else. <laughs> if only there was some ways to tell. And 
I have a list here of some of the ways that the RCMP would sort of try to figure out what somebody's sexual orientation was. If you wear, if you're male and you wear a pinky ring, dead giveaway. Huh. If you drive a white convertible. That's so weird. Dead giveaway. The way you hold your cigarette. Uh, the way you sit with your legs crossed, Lee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do. Uh, oh, and being expressive with your hands. Oh, well, you're pointing at me. Why? <laughs> because I was being expressive with my hands. <laughs> and this one's only specific to women if you play sports. If you play I'm sports and you're a man, that. then you're yeah. straight as an arrow. Right. Yeah. But if you play sports and you're a woman, according yeah. to the RCP in the 1950s, hmm. perhaps yeah. you're really playing for the other team. Mm-hmm. How effective do you think these methods would be? Oh, it's like, I'm trying to think of an analogy for how terrible it is. Um, how inaccurate. <laughs> it, it doesn't work at all. Well, and, and part of the way you can tell it didn't work is that the RCMP up on their wall had a big map of Ottawa, which is Canada's capital city for people who don't know. And anywhere that there was a spot that there was like a suspected sort of hot spot for homosexual activity, they would put a red dot. And so then they were doing this for a few months. And by the end of the few months, basically, it was just one giant red dot <laughs> over the town of Ottawa. And they're like, okay. Does that mean that, that the, even the people putting up the dots are gay? Well, I guess they might have looked at it. It's like, oh, my God, that dot is where we are right now. So what they realized not was that their methodology was flawed or that the whole project was ridiculous. Yeah. They thought, we need a bigger map. Surely that's the answer. They would send in agents into clubs, into, sus into suspicious clubs, and these agents would have newspapers with them. Oh, my gosh. With holes no. cut. Yes. No. Yes. I was going to say that as a joke. And yet it's true. Oh. With peepholes cut out of them. And so there'd be Who's people. Who is the creep here? Yeah. Right? <laughs> well, like that's an excellent question. <laughs> so you'd be at the club having a drink, and then you'd look over, and in a corner there'd be a person <laughs> sitting by themselves with oh a big God, newspaper stop. held up in front of their face with a camera pointed through a hole. Oh, my God. So that was going on. I mean, and they also, I, sorry, it, go ahead. it's not funny. I mean, right? that, that is, it's darkly funny. It's, it, it, well, it, but the, being a part of a culture of persecution, that's not funny. No. You know what I mean? But the but bizarre tactics to try look, and identify Yeah, like people. when you look back yeah. at it, you're like, oh my God, this is so ridiculous. Yeah. yeah, it's about to get worse. I'm glad we had that transition from <laughs> the funny to the grim. Because then at the dawn of the 60s, I mean, it was a technological age computers and such mm -hmm. right there's got to be some kind of machine we can build <laughs> computers that fill rooms yeah giant yeah. computers that yeah. fill rooms so a, a dr robert wake a psychology professor from carlton university which is one of our fine universities uh he designed something it kind of looks like a dentist chair with a camera suspended in front of it and this is how this would work they would strap you into this chair if you were a suspicious if you were mm -hmm. a suspicious person they would strap you into this chair and this camera would be pointed right at your eyeball and then they would show you lewd pictures. And I've actually got one of the actual pictures oh, really? that I'll send to you guys. I'll show it to you right now because it's pretty hot. <laughs> I mean, and this is also widely... Oh, yeah, okay. I think I feel like I've seen that from in the, in the fruit. This is the fruit machine. Yeah. yeah. It's like a muscle man with a handlebar mustache yeah. from like the 1920s. Oh my God. So they would show somebody that picture. Now Lee has sunglasses on so I can't see his eyes. But I'm showing him this picture. Now the theory is they would show these pictures to men and if their pupils dilated mm -hmm. because they wouldn't be able to help that. That's just an automatic reaction. Right. Then that would mean that they liked what they saw uh -huh. and therefore were gay. I mean, 
Did they not show it to women too? To other, was it just on men? Uh, this was in the 1960s, and back then they were a little bit more concerned. Yeah, they became more concerned about women later on. Right. But at the time, um, I think they did also use it on women. And I can't remember if it took how long it took them to figure out how wildly inaccurate this could be too because if like you show someone a sexy picture if it's sexy they might just react to it anyways whether or not it's a man or a woman yeah, or like, if they're into photography yeah. they might yeah. be like that's Ooh, a nice, damn. Nice that was right. really picture. well yeah or i wish i had that mustache <laughs> yeah <laughs> but sorry well, can i just ask of course just in order to gauge i i mean it's 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 implausible to say the least but just to gauge whether there was even an attempt at making this scientifically rigorous were there control groups here oh, like no, no nothing way. along those lines no, no they, so they just basically had a hypothesis and then they built a machine to the hypothesis yeah. and, and i think okay. what had happened is they had watched those old cartoons where like a cartoon dog sees something attractive and, and it it's goes, like Aruga! yeah yeah yeah, it's, tongue, yeah, yeah. <laughs> its eyes go bulging out if they strap me into this chair and they showed me a photograph of a gretsch black penguin guitar Right? Yeah. Like, my my eyes would dilate. Yeah. Doesn't necessarily mean that I want to have sexual relations with that guitar. <laughs> Not necessarily. So, there were, a lot of, there were a lot of issues with this. Yeah. I'm sorry. I just went to some weird places just for a moment. <laughs> but I couldn't tell because he has sunglasses on. Yeah. I can't see his eyes. In 1969, homosexuality was decriminalized in Canada. Mm-hmm. But that did not stop this purge that was happening in both the, uh, in our State Department and also, at this point, specifically in the armed forces. This was at a, at a time when a lot of women were entering into the armed forces. We're going to play a game that we've played before. We played this when we had a live show. I don't think we've ever played it. <laughs> seen the picture of this. Oh, there we go. I don't think we've ever played it uh, over a podcast, but this is a game called Stasi or Not Stasi. Lee, do you want to explain this game? So... It first came up when we were doing a live podcast on uh, COINTELPRO, and um, it turns out (laughs) that a lot of the techniques the FBI was using uh, were techniques that were either very similar to the ones that the uh, Stasi were using, and the Stasi, of course, the secret police of East Germany, was known. They were just known for overindulging in espionage and surveillance and all that kind of stuff. And so we, we played this game with the audience where we threw out some questions, you know, uh, mail, for example, who opened, who, uh, who secretly opened the mail of uh, suspected political radicals uh, only to reseal it again and in the hopes that nobody would know, was that the Stasi or was it the FBI? And so we did this game where we threw out questions and it was surprising, at least to me in the research, how often actually... <laughs> It was the FBI. Sometimes they were doing things even the Stasi wasn't doing. So we get to play that game again. And I'm we're excited. Gonna play, we're going to yeah. play that right now. I'm okay, excited. so I'm going to it. just describe a thing, and then each of you is going to say, was that Stasi or were those Canadian officials? Okay. okay. Are we thinking any specific like RCMP or just this generally is, the is, Canadian state? This would state? be uh, the Canadian Armed Forces officials. All right. Okay. okay. So imagine that you are arrested at your job blindfolded, stuck in a car, brought to an interrogation room. Stasi or not Stasi? 
the Stasi, as I, as I knew it, they didn't do the whole blindfolding thing. Like they were, that, that often gives it away is the Stasi was actually less ah. secret. Everyone knew they were doing it right. and they liked to do it so that you could see. Yeah, you to needed to see your neighbor being fear. dragged yeah. away, right? Right. Um, so I would say uh, a Canadian Army. I'm going to have to agree only because of your logic. I wouldn't have guessed that before that, though. <laughs> yep, you are correct. Yeah. That is wow. Canadian Army wow. in the 1970s. Oh, my God. Okay. You find yourself in a straight-back chair in an empty room. That could be Stasi. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll go Canadian military. You're sure. both right. Oh, ah, there you go. Stasi okay. did treat yeah. people like that, and the Canadian military okay. was treating people like that. Stasi, Stasi tried to kill people with boredom. That was one, like, one mm. of their things. Uh, you are basically interrogated. They ask you extremely specific questions that ha- of a sexual nature where you have to basically explain how... You have sex. <laughs> Definitely the army because the Stasi yeah. would know. Yeah, because yes. they've been watching it. They've been watching they it for months. So. They have photos and everything. <laughs> they got everybody yeah. you did it with. They got all yeah. their confessions. <laughs> wow, did they army. really do that? That's terrible. So you'd be a female soldier and you would have been blindfolded and dragged into this empty room. And then they would ask you, how do you have sex with no. your girlfriend? Yes. Okay, so this though, and I think this has come up in our podcast before, and I think it was about when when we discussed Leo Taxel, I seem to remember that there was the same kind of lurid interest by the quote unquote normals. It was almost as though it was a kind of acceptable form of pornography. You know, it's like, no, 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 we're not into pornography, but this isn't a, this is not, this is a hearing. Yeah, right? we need so you to describe tell exactly. All tell me exactly, details. right? It seems like that. Like there's this Yeah, yeah, yeah. This kind of like yeah. <laughs> dirty observer fantasy right. thing going on with like totally heteronormative army tell us everything. <laughs> yeah. Not only was it No, a, honestly, uh, we don't know how it works. Tell yeah. us everything. Yeah. Could could you draw a picture? Yeah. I should say I saw one interview with a soldier who had had to go through this. And when they got to the question where they said, "How do you have sex with a woman?" She said, bring your wife in and I'll show you. Ah! Damn. I like that. But they weren't just asking sexual questions. They were also asking just weird questions like, who takes the garbage out? Oh, my God. Yeah, that was a question that was also being asked by the officials. I mean, this surprises me, but it also doesn't because you'll still get people today asking, like straight people today asking gay people. So when you dance, who leads? Yeah, Yeah, totally. Or who wears the pants? Or, like, they can't understand that the same gender norms don't have to apply. And, of course, asking anybody who wears pants now is ridiculous. Yeah. Because none of us have worn pants for a really, really long time. In my house, my wife tends to take out the garbage. Okay. What does that mean? Well, tell it to the Canadian Armed Forces. No, but I don't even understand. Like, what do we get out of this? They were just, it seemed like maybe part of it might have just been they just had no idea yeah. what they were right, okay. talking about. Right. It, it does sound like that. Is there one more? No, there's a bunch more. Oh, sweet. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, I gave one of them away. Uh, they will hold you for days if you don't talk. Stasi or not Stasi? I could both say both? both here. Definitely yeah. Stasi, but yeah. I would say both. Yeah. yeah. Tragically, it's both. Yeah. They demand that you name the names of other people. And basically, like, give them up in order to protect yourself. Canadian military did that for sure. But I'm sure, did the Stasi too? The Stasi did, but you didn't protect yourself much. 
well, uh, you could turn informant. Yeah, if you're not turn, if if you're not going to turn informant. Well, no so point. yeah, I'd say army. Yep, that was that was yeah. army. And uh, we're good at this game. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I like this game. Reading mail and tapping phones. Oh yeah, that was definitely Stasi. Uh, probably army. I don't both. Know. That was both. Yeah. What a fun game. Wow. <laughs> and by fun, I mean I'm sad. <laughs> I know. And do you want to be sadder? Let's do it, man. I yeah. mean, yeah, I'm going to lean into it. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm really going to lean into how sad this is because the people this was happening to were like 18. Mm. Ugh. Sure. 18, of course. 19, you think who's getting into the army? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. Of course. And they had volunteered. They were like patriotic Canadians. Right. They want to join the armed forces. Yep. 18 years old. They, yep. they, they might not even know. Like they might not even know how mm-hmm. to have sex at that point. Totally. Uh, want to get sadder? I'm leaning okay. in. So you would lose your, your job and your identity, too, because for a lot of these people, like, the army was their life. It was the thing that they always wanted to do for their short 18 mm-hmm. years. Uh, it meant everything to them. They, had, they gave up all sorts of other things to get into it. It was a place where they had community. It was a place where they had meaning, and they, were, they, they would have all of that threatened. They would also be offered rehabilitation. Oh, dear. That sounds scary. Yeah. It... Um, this goes back to Lee's earlier question of, okay, so, like, what do they think this is? Mm-hmm. Because what you think it is is going to change how it's treated. They seem to be working on kind of a mental illness model, tragically. And so one of the things that they would offer you, and some of the people did it because mm-hmm. they were scared and they might have even internalized the idea that there was something wrong oh, with Oh, for them. sure. Yeah. For because sure. how would you help doing that? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so... Basically, you would have five or six rounds of old-fashioned electroshock therapy. Man. I mean, the first part, like minus the rehabilitation, can be applied to all of the federal workers, too, in Canada and the states who lost their jobs. Because that would have been their livelihood, the job they trained for. And they wouldn't have been able to reenter that. There was a lot of, there was cases of depression, cases of suicide happening after that, too. And being targeted in that way. and, um, And, yeah, losing that, you know that livelihood that you relied on and valued. I don't know how to get out of... I don't know either. Well, I was just going to I was just gonna add fuel to the fire to say oh, that... Okay. Um, it's sadder, okay. Well, it's not even that, but I, I just found myself reacting when you were talking about the medical interventions. And it's the same with... The same feeling I got out of MKUltra. There's, there's this people losing their jobs and people being spied on and that's all awful and just as elena said you know even suicide may result from Mm -hmm. something like that but when doctors get involved there's another level level, exactly those were exactly the words i was going to say there's a whole new level of horror when you have some kid and this from the MK Ultra, who you know was taken by her parents to a psychiatrist because she had been raped and then she is broken totally yeah. by the people who are trying to help her these kids 18 volunteer to become soldiers patriots for their country and then some of them because they are basically browbeaten into it are volunteering now for electroshock therapy and whatever like hormone therapy quote unquote it makes me mad mm-hmm. it makes me mad even in a way that the other stuff didn't make me this mad well, I'm like raging mad now. <laughs> well, I mean, on the positive side of this is that when people do get mad enough, that that's when they fight back in mm. many cases, right? And so we have like 
Frank Kameny, who I mentioned, um, fighting back and mobilizing, you know, effort for equity or to stop injustices at least. So when people or when groups do get angry enough or the injustices are obvious enough, right, and a kind of, I don't know what you want to call it, a more sort of group consciousness comes about, uh, and people do fight back. I mentioned Frank Kameny in D.C. fighting back and having all these sort of different levels of, well, he was fighting back on different levels, I should say, against injustices against gay people, you know, in the military or in government or even the very turn, the idea of, of homosexuality being a mental disorder. We have cases in Toronto and Montreal, like the Toronto, was it Operation Soap, 1981? That's right. Um, the bathhouse raids in Toronto, um, that then led to public protest as well. And also, I mean, when discrimination or targeting becomes so obvious, that's when you also get members of the public to see it for what it is and the brutality that it, that it encompasses, right? Like in Toronto, the queer community was um, afraid of what they called the Cherry Beach Express, which was when police would, um, after dark, would take probably more likely men or maybe transgender people too as well, like whoever the most vulnerable groups were really, to the waterfront area, their Cherry Beach and beat them up. Oh, wow. Right? Huh. So um, in Stonewall, uh, 1969, Greenwich Village in, um, in New York as well. So, I mean, that was, that was a huge one as well. And it was all against police brutality. Right. Yeah. Right. And I've got one more story to sort of put a cap on this, the story I've told of these, specifically these particular women in the, in the Canadian Armed Forces who had to go through all of this and then lost everything. Now, this happened to them when they were 18, 19, 20. Well, things had improved enough by the time they were in their mid-30s that some of them actually re-enlisted. Wow. Some of them went through boot camp again. Wow. And some of them got back into the armed forces. Huh. That's dedication. Let me ask you both a question. If we can... In my research, I found a pretty definitive start date for the Lavender Scare. Somewhere around February 1950. Mm -hmm. um, and at least the, the people I was listening to and reading noted that's when the firing of 91 suspected homosexuals from the State Department happened. That was in February 1950. Is there an end date? Because we sort of like have in, in this podcast moved from what seems to be a kind of an official witch hunt mm -hmm. of, you know, identifying, finding persecuting a group of people to a kind of amorphous societal distrust, dislike people, you know, it, it's legal, but, or it's decriminalized, mm -hmm. but you can still get fired. You can still get beaten up, but you at least theoretically could take it to the police who will maybe beat you up. Yeah. Is there, it seems like it just sort of keeps going in a way that the Red Scare is over. You know, like there comes a point where people are like, yeah, it's communism is not a threat. I've got a date maybe for Canada at least. Mm -hmm. And it's unfortunately extremely recently. Mm -hmm. uh, November 28th, 2017, where the Prime Minister of Canada at the time, Justin Trudeau, delivered the following speech in the House of Commons to a bunch of, in fact, some of those soldiers were there at the time. Okay. You are professionals. You are patriots, and above all, you are innocent. And for all your suffering, you deserve justice and you deserve peace. It is our collective shame that you were so mistreated, and it is our collective shame that this apology took so long, 
Many who suffered are no longer alive to hear these words, and for that we are truly sorry. Hmm. I mean, I don't know what you think about official apologies, if what they're worth. Okay, so it was June 15th of this year. The Washington Post has reported there was a the Supreme Court decided to extend workplace protections to gay and transgender employees um, because Trump had has been putting up a few challenges basically to LGBTQ rights. And also the reason I remembered this was because I saw people um, posting videos on TikTok about it because that's where I get a lot of my news these days. Sure. Yeah. Speaking of social media. Oh, yeah. And you know what? I want to give a shout out to Shauna and to Caleb, too. Uh, Caleb, I believe, is our like biggest local fan. He lives like five minutes away from here. That is very local. Yeah. Hi, Caleb. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Yeah. And Shauna. Yeah. Um, and so you can follow us at The Uncover Up on Instagram. Please do. And like like our stuff. Tell us what you want to see posted. Email us. Email rate us, us. Review us. If you have any photographs of UFOs, please send them to us. Mm, if mm-hmm. you have any corrections to make or on the any Loch Ness podcast, Monster. Or the Loch Ness Monster. And you can send those to us at... Oh, God. The, podcast at Uncover Up. That's... No. No. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to get it I wrong, too. I told you, never tell me. Gonna, never, I'll never remember the Uncover ever. Up It was at, pretty close. <laughs> podcast at theuncoverup.com. Oh. Okay. oh, I was so close. Super close. That's us. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. Happy Pride, everybody. Yes, happy happy Pride. Pride. See you next time. Bye.